Welcome to the Productive Producer Podcast, brought to you by the Northern Tablelands Local Land Services. This is your podcast for production and management decisions relevant to the Northern Tablelands region. On today's episode, I'm joined by veterinarian, nutritionist and livestock consultant, Dr. Gillian Kelly. We have a good chat about some of the strategies to overcome high moisture content pastures, as well as some other production challenges associated with the wet spring and summer. Gillian Kelly, welcome to the Productive Producer Podcast. Oh, thanks very much, Max. It's great to be invited to chat with you today. Oh, I'm glad to get you along and you're coming in to us today from Canamble. Yeah, the centre of the universe. Uh, it's just drizzling rain here this morning and it's a nice place to be. A very similar weather by the sounds of it to where I'm at in Tenerfield today. Yeah, it's um, pretty widespread, isn't it? It sure is a change of season compared to what we've had a few years back, which I still remember clearly. Oh, I sure do as well. And that brings us to our topic of conversation today is the bomb's forecasting another wet summer for us. Grass is growing, it's green, it's lush, it's got a high moisture content and we need money in the bank. We need to make the most out of production from our livestock. Yeah, isn't it a turnaround? Um, I think people are almost getting to the point where they're openly whinging about too much rain. It um, sounds a bit um, spoilt, doesn't it, to be wishing it away? But it's certainly at the point where there's a bit too much and it's um, holding up production, both in terms of the livestock, also, you know, potentially a really drawn out harvest. That's it. We're finding across most of the eastern seaboard that where our soil moisture profile is very full or getting to the way of full and there's a lot of subsurface water about. Yeah, and um, I mean, the pasture is really wet, isn't it? And the stock don't enjoy the conditions. They've got wet feet, they're eating wet, lush grass. And despite the fact that we've been taught to grow really productive, wet, green pastures, ruminants were meant to digest poor quality roughages in a lot of circumstances. And um, they need a bit of that balance, don't they, just to do well. And we've got to manage that this spring and summer. Yep, and that's some of the things we're going to chat about today. So we might start off, and can you tell us about some of the limitations associated with high moisture content pastures? Well, I think that's just it. That moisture content really is a barrier to production. I suppose if you break it down and look at the feed test, which is just of such benefit, if you can do a feed test on the pasture, like absolutely run one Um, it's money well spent and then if you can get some advice to interpret the results you'll be way ahead of the game but just broadly speaking these um, pastures and also crops uh, they're pretty high in energy so they're very digestible and they've got a lot of protein in them and a lot of moisture so I was just looking at a feed test this morning and I mean lush rapidly growing Around about 12 megajoules of energy um, per kilo of dry matter, about 25 to 30% crude protein, and only 17% dry matter. So a lot of water in that. Yeah, what that essentially means is 83% moisture. And that will be really appetite limiting for the animals that are grazing that. Yeah, but like those energy and protein levels were good, but like you said, that water is really going to be limiting 
um, the amount they can actually eat and digest. Yeah, and then you get a rainy day and there's actually water sitting on top of the plant as well. So that's adding to the moisture content of every mouthful. And animals will just undergo bite fatigue. They've only got so many bites in them each day and then they'd prefer to go and camp under a tree and have a rest. So it really does limit the ability to get those really important megajoules into them. I guess, especially if you're a lactating cow or a heavily pregnant ewe, it's probably going to be production limiting. I did some sums and um, like a 550 kilo cow grazing a, um, a pasture like that's probably going to have to eat about 14 and a half kilos of dry matter but when you add the moisture content in it works out about 87 kilos of feed on an as feed basis that she's actually got to chomp off and chew and that's just physically impossible yeah physically impossible and you know she will she'll go and camp under a tree and have a rest instead and this is the critical time up here on the tablelands for livestock production with our lactating cows and our user on the ground lambing at the moment, their energy demand is the greatest. So if we want to get them back in calf and rare lambs, we really need to be looking after these females. That's exactly right. And if we remember too that like our rumen is just a happier place when we've got a bit of fibre in there because a lot of rumen microbes like to live on a fibre stalk. And also with these high moisture feeds, there's not much to hold it in the rumen. So it's actually shooting through the rumen really quickly. And if you have a look at your animal's poo, which is a great idea, it's actually, some of it is like green paint on the ground and it's still bubbling. So that means it's still fermenting on the way out which is a, a really bad thing. You're not getting the best digestion out of what goes in there. So the rumen bugs aren't getting enough time to attack it and break it down because it's going through so quickly. Yeah, that, that can be an issue. Um, and the other thing that's just really limiting is that, I mean, we've got lots of moisture. The carbohydrate portion of the feed is rocket fuel. So it's incredibly readily fermentable. And although it's not as dangerous as like the starches that we fed in the drought with cereal grains, it is still really readily fermentable carbohydrate. So it, it's just rocket fuel to those rumen bugs and it's incredibly readily transferred into volatile fatty acids in the rumen. And those volatile fatty acids are acids, so they drop the rumen pH. And it might not be as dramatic as in a grain-fed diet, but if we measure it and we you know, we've got tools that can measure to the 0.1 of a pH. They're actually, it's subacute ruminal acidosis. They're acidotic in a lot of these cases, which is production limiting in itself. Yep. And that accounts for like when you see subacute acidosis, like in the feces that you were talking about, some of those bubbles is a good telling point. Yeah, absolutely. Get out in the paddock and have a look at some of that poo. And if you see that really sloppy, loose stuff with bubbles, yeah, it's probably worth managing that acidosis. You you will um, you'll get great benefit from that. There's been some really cool recent studies published just last year that showed the benefits of um, mineral supplementation on um, like cereal crops, um, and the the benefits that were seen in terms of the weight gains, which were up to 27% increase in weight gains, 
although we're probably correcting mineral deficiencies on those crops, what we're really doing is neutralising acid in that rumen and benefiting from the production. And that was seen through putting a buffer through some of these or giving stock access to a buffer? Yeah, so they were, they were done grazing lush cereal crops and they were done at numerous trial sites around New South Wales. And they actually um, recognised that, you know, cereal crops, as with all lush green things, it doesn't have to be a cereal crop necessarily, but they're quite imbalanced. So they're high in potassium and they're low in sodium and those sorts of things impact calcium and magnesium absorption. And so by supplementing with mineral licks, so um, in my environment, I like lime and salt or lime and salt and Cosmag, but there'll be different variations for different regions. You'll correct the deficiencies, but what you're really doing, and this is the trick, is you're asking the animal to salivate. And salivation is really important to a rumen. Um, a, a cow just on a general mixed pasture will actually produce about 100 litres of saliva a day. So, the, and the main ingredient in saliva is bicarb soda, which neutralises acid. So they're swallowing huge amount of their own rumen buffering compound when they're on a decent mixed pasture. When they go onto something that's lush with low fibre, they've got no reason to chew. They basically just slurp it down. And so they don't swallow all that bicarb. And how do you get an animal to chew or to salivate? You can either provide hay or you can provide something salty or a mineral lick that that makes their mouth water. And I think that's where the gold lies and that's why they've seen these incredible um, production benefits from supplementing with minerals on lush crop. And we do see those benefits run through to some other production benefits. I know in the tablelands we, we do recommend what you're talking about as well as the magnesium in the diet, but this time of year grass tetany is also an issue so i think it's a great opportunity to get that magnesium into the diet to reduce chances of grass tetany yeah absolutely that's a big risk we do see grass tetany and also hypocalcemia in lactating animals on crop Um, i mean out here we even see hypocalcemia in growing animals on crop and i have seen it on lush pasture it doesn't necessarily have to be a crop um but yeah, absolutely, you'll see immense benefits from supplementation with minerals, whether it's keeping them alive or making them grow more and do better. So keeping those minerals out, but when do you find the balance where you need to provide roughage in that paddock? Is it putting the minerals out you find and then looking at the feces and see if, see if there's the change? Or what's your thoughts around that? Look, that's how I'd, I'd approach it, just from a financial point of view licks are fairly cheap and fairly easy to put out Um, and the other thing is accessing paddocks with the amount of moisture and the rain at the moment can be really tricky in terms of getting hay out into those paddocks but if you have got a really um, low fiber content pasture or crop or if there's any risk of bloat or you've got animals that are heading into a period where there's going to be a cold snap, I would definitely be putting some hay out as well. And we are at that time of year where it doesn't take much for a cold snap to come through, particularly lambing at the moment, and you can lose a lot of lambs that way. 
Yeah, absolutely. Roughage is just really important in that room and for heat production. So some hay during those periods, if you can just watch the weather forecast, would be really of benefit. And how do you provide the balance, in your opinion, when you're providing hay? You want them to be eating grass because it's cheaper than providing hay. So providing the balance of the quality of hay and managing if it's too story or if it's too good a quality you need to find that balance where they are actually going to eat it but not eat too much of it. Yeah, that can be tricky. The grain and graze trial work that was done a few years ago did actually show the benefits of feeding just straw to, um, to lambs grazing lush crops. And that's all about getting that salivation happening as well. So even with poor quality hay you can get a production response if they're subclinically if they're subclinically acidotic but I agree if you're really driving production you don't want them living on straw because you're essentially filling that really valuable room and space with something that's not very nutritious so you will get better responses with minerals um, and yeah on the other end of the spectrum you don't want to be supplementing these animals with say a, a lush vetch or a loosened hay because you're you're probably contributing to the problem. You, you want that happy medium in the middle there somewhere. Yeah, definitely. And is there any other, like, our livestock have been on wet pastures for a period of time now, particularly in our sheep, we're seeing a lot of foot issues. Is there anything you could talk about that we could do to help improve the condition of hooves? Yeah, it's a problem right across the state, really, and it deserves a bit of attention. I think I'm um, examining the feet and having a look and trying to work out why they're lame is really important because lots of pe- foot, foot issues can be quite complicated and it's hard to tell whether it's benign foot rot, virulent foot rot or abscess in some cases. So having a look and just developing that relationship with your vet's a really good idea to, to get an answer as to why they're lame. Um and then you can go from there in terms of treatment, whether you need foot baths or antibiotics. Um, but drying the feet out is really important, which I know is like silly advice because everything's wet. Oh, it is wet. And getting onto these paddocks is one of the other challenges that, is, that we're having, particularly on some of these basalt soils. So I'd like your comment of starting with the mineral supplementation and then seeing how that goes for a period of time before moving to hay because it it is difficult to get onto paddocks at the moment and get hay or grain feeders into these stock. Yeah, absolutely. And I just would urge caution with the grain feeders as well. Um, a lot of the – the reason we put – the reason that we probably have been um, taught to put grain feeders into paddocks is to balance the energy and the protein of some of these pastures and crops. So what I mean by that is for a perfectly balanced rumen, whatever the energy component is, we probably want the protein to be too um, integers more than that. So for example, if the energy content is 12, we probably want the protein to be about 14%. And in reality, on a lot of these lush pastures or crop, the energy is probably somewhere around 12 or 13 and the protein is like 25 or 30%. So we've got oodles and oodles of protein and not really enough energy. So 
what happens with that protein molecule when it hits the rumen is the the um, rumen bugs immediately disassemble it and they use the carbon skeleton as an energy source and then the nitrogen or the ammonia compound off the end of it floats around, ends up getting absorbed around across the rumen wall and floats around in the bloodstream. And ammonia is toxic, so it can't stay there. So it's madly being processed by the liver to turn it into urea so that it can be excreted by the kid- kidneys and peed out. And that's a really energy dependent process. I mean, livers don't run on air, they run on energy. So by feeding a diet that's really imbalanced like that, you're actually draining really valuable energy that could be used for growth or production and channeling it into running a big overheated liver. And that can be counterintuitive to what we're trying to do. Um, So by putting out a grain feeder, you're feeding a really dense energy source and trying to balance that protein. But you can really easily overdo it because as we've spoken about, some of these crops and pastures make animals subclinically acidotic. So if you add a little bit more starch into that, you're, you're making, you can make them really acidotic really quickly and you will kill them. So just be really judicious with your cereal grain and clamp those feeders down as much as you can. Yep, and this will lead to the next point. The importance of the fibre mat and grain generally doesn't have a whole heap of fibre in it. Could you touch on how important it is in the rumen to have that fibre mat? Well, yeah, a fibre mat is super important to that room and structure because it sits in the middle and it's a it's a place where a lot of microbes hang out and also it allows all the slosh and the, the room and fermentation liquid to be at the bottom and it allows the gas bubble to float to the top and then be safely burped or, um, or farted out. But without that fibre mat, you end up with a really um, mixed up rumen um, cons- um, consistency, I suppose. And once you drop that rumen pH down a little bit, once you start to get into the to the low fives, like below pH five and a half, you create some bugs like strep bovis that have got a slimy capsule and they actually trap gas. So this is where frothy bloat comes from. Um, and yeah, f- frothy bloat... Um, can't be really alleviated by stabbing the animal because it's gas trapped in little foam bubbles, not one big, not one big um, bubble of air that can be stabbed out. So it can be really dangerous and really deadly really quickly. But that's that's how it occurs. If you can add some more fibre into that room, and you'll get a better structure, and you'll also be making them salivate and chew and neutralising that um, room, and so strep bovis doesn't like to live there anymore. Yep, and we've chatted about this on the podcast previously. We did an episode on bloat and prevention is always the best option. Oh, absolutely. Just assessing what you've got and then just instigating whatever measures you can. Bloat can be really tricky, um, especially in wet conditions because, you know, putting things in troughs and dams will often, you know, there's multiple watering points when there's swampy areas in paddocks and things like that. It can be really tricky, I I admit, but there's um, there's a range of things that you can throw at them and it's probably worth with the, you know, with the value of stock to, to try to do something. Oh, definitely stock. Stock is continuing to be worth good money. So yeah, anyone who's 
concerned about bloke there is that good episode to go back and listen to for our listeners there yeah absolutely and i just think fiber is really comforting to rumen's to ruminants too they really um seem unsatisfied without fiber in their diet and they weeks you can see depravity in animals they go and will eat a bit of galvanized burr or a bit of box thorn or they'll chew the bark off the trees in a timber belt that's left in the paddock or something like that and you know that's where we get things like woody tongue um and those sorts of problems occurring and if you can often fix what's going on in the diet and and correct those issues from the from what they're eating um you can offset other problems like that and one of the other things that we need to be on the lookout for that I'll hopefully get you to make comment on is pulpy kidney Yeah, absolutely. It's always a bit of the vet's dilemma, you know, whether they died of bloat or pulpy kidney because they're often quite interchangeable and connected. So a vaccination for pulpy kidney is absolutely essential. And if you actually, depending on which brand of product you're using, if you read the label, um, some of the pulpy kidney claims are shorter than the the annual booster. So they might only protect the animal for say 12 weeks under a high challenge situation. So going into spring, I would definitely be boosting animals for pulpy kidney, especially if you're going to put them onto a fresh paddock where it's really lush and really green, I would be um, investing in a, in a booster. And then reassessing based on what the pasture is doing and the um, vaccination you used. Yeah, absolutely. And just whenever you're introducing animals, just really think about that transition period. Try not to go from, say, eating really rough, dry stuff onto really lush stuff. That rumen is not going to transition well. So just slow transitions, like putting them in after lunch, giving them a few hours, um, taking them out, strip grazing. And if you really don't have the time or the manpower for that, at least fill them up with, fill their rumen up with something in the morning and put them onto the new pasture or the new crop after lunch. We know that animals innately eat less in the afternoon, so it's a good time to introduce them to new feed. So Gillian, if we circle back to high moisture content pastures, different classes of livestock have different nutritional goals and production goals. So our weathers may not be chasing the same level of production as that of a lactating ewe and same with cattle. Can you touch on how we find the right supplement for those different classes of livestock? Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose there's not only assessing the pasture is important, but assessing the class of animals and understanding their nutritional needs is really important. And I mean, that's quite complicated. It might be that you need to develop a relationship with a vet or a livestock officer or um, an advisor that can help you with that for your specific situation. But just broadly speaking, yeah, you're right. Like weathers, you know, you might be able to just run them on crop with a bit of lick. But for example, lactating animals, fibre is actually really important to milk quality and quantity as well. That's why dairy cow diets have got like a high fibre content. So yeah, you might be wanting to treat those lactating animals differently and provide a good quality fibre source for them on a lush uh, crop or pasture just to aid lactation and um, support of those calves or lambs that are at foot. Yeah, so it's not a one size shoe fits all policy 
Definitely not. No. And it will vary for regions and it'll vary from time to time. Uh, it'll vary um, depending on time of year and things like that. So some specific information for your situation is highly recommended. Now, Dylan, is there any other tips or tricks you have for people who are looking at getting the most out of their livestock on these high moisture content pastures? Yeah, the other thing that I find fascinating during this, particularly during these sorts of seasons where the weather fluctuates all the time, is how cattle behaviour or sheep behaviour changes depending on weather conditions. And I've actually just downloaded a free app on my phone. It's just a barometer app. And if you actually watch barometric pressure and watch your animals, their appetites change depending on the barometric pressure. So typically when a front's coming through and the barometric pressure is uh, dropping, they go off their feed and then they sort of, while it's wet, they huddle and don't eat much. And then when the barometric pressure returns to normal and the sun comes out, they eat because they're hungry because they haven't eaten for a couple of days. And I mean, that's a big issue we saw in the drought with um, acidosis, animals going on and off grain diets, but it's also an issue for us grazing these lush pastures um, because as I've talked about, they are they can induce subclinical acidosis and that appetite fluctuation can be um, really influential on their production. So a practical application of that might be that if you've got grain feeders in the paddocks and you know that the barometric pressure is dropping, you might want to go and close your feeders down or you might want to go and put some more hay in the paddock um, just to regulate that, um, that rebound onto the feed after the weather change has gone through. And people may also want to use that information to forward plan um, the sale of livestock if they know that they're going to be going off off feed for a period of time and, lo- and not having the production that they're chasing, they may be able to strategically use that information to sell livestock. Well, potentially, I suppose I've never really considered that. But I just think it's a good idea to watch it because we saw such an influence on drought-fed animals during the drought. I reckon it's a good idea to start watching it and get your eye in for what's normal around your um, area. And then you can use it if you do ever need to grain feed animals down the track. It can be really um, a helpful little tool to iron out some of those um, creases in their grain intakes. So something interesting that I've seen on the tablelands with the use of the data we've got from some of the walkover way systems is prior to prior to a rainfall event weight gain's been pretty steady and then weight gain does drop for a period of days post rainfall event and then it gradually picks up so there is quite a bit of a lag time whilst it's raining so um, production is kind of halted for a period there Yeah, that's really interesting. We're getting smarter and smarter with all this data that we're collecting and how we can then use that to alter production. That's that's, um, fascinating and a constant, um, you know, source of somewhere where we can, you know, improve. It's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, definitely. These um, new technologies that are hitting the market are making us think about some of these things a little bit more. Yeah, if you don't measure, you don't know, do you? So... That's it. 
And I had another question written down regarding moisture content in native pastures versus improved pastures. Are we going to see much of a difference? Yeah, so typically your improved pastures will probably have more moisture content. Um, they're highly productive and they're probably very digestible. So um, potentially, I think it depends a lot on the individual species and the the stage of growth and the time of year, Max. But um, uh, if in doubt, do a feed test is my um, sort of rule. Yep. Is that your go-to method for measuring moisture content in pastures? Oh, not always. I guess um, you can do your own pasture cuts at home, which is a great technique. And there's lots of resources available, you know, online for that. Um, but just, yeah, uh, doing regular pasture assessments in terms of, uh, quantity and then working at the moisture content just yourself, you know, using your microwave is um, really, really useful. Yep. And if you're going to be doing that um, moisture content in the microwave, I would recommend moving the microwave out of the kitchen. <laughs> yes, and watch it closely. Um, it does, it stinks the place out and I've, I've set a few on fire. <laughs> Yep. So just a little tip there for some of us who may have um, lit a few fires in a microwave or two. Jill, how do we measure the amount of pasture livestock need so we, they're not just running around chasing that green pick all day? Do you have any methods around that? Absolutely. I do pasture cuts very often just to keep an eye on pasture quantity. It's as important as quality in my book. So throwing out your pasture square, um, doing a cut, weighing it, drying it, working out um, kilos of dry matter per hectare is really useful. And it's just super important to not get green fever and to put your animals onto lush rapidly growing stuff too early in spring once it starts to grow because the animals really will just hoover that green stuff and as we've spoken about it's probably largely water and they're spending a lot of energy walking so they'll often be expending more energy than they're actually eating and they'll lose weight in that period and not to mention it just damages your country and ultimately damages your pasture stand or your you know your crop growth rate later at and it's probably best just holding them a bit longer and putting them out a bit later once the, once the pasture's a bit more established and taller. And the pastures are going to get away on us as it does, as it warms up and we get a few of these longer days. So you won't be having them confined for too long. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, for the forecast of a wet spring and summer, you know, so add some warm days to that. Hopefully we're going to get lots of growth to make up for the, the longer, colder winter that we've experienced this year with no growth. Yeah. Well, there's some fantastic points and discussion we've had around this today. Jill, thank you very much for coming on the podcast and I really do appreciate your time. Oh, thanks, Max. It's been my pleasure. If you liked today's episode, hit the subscribe button. Feel free to jump onto our Facebook page, productive producer. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for more episodes.